space tonight and um, have questions and answers. So I'll read out your question and see if I can answer it. This is a long one. <laughs> Could you speak a little more about emotions? My understanding is that emotion is sensation in the body caused by mental formations, maybe as reaction to previous sensation, mental formation. Is it necessary to know what the unwholesome emotion is about in order to let go of it? My experience is that emotion isn't always clearly linked to anything, or there is a gap, sometimes days, between the stimulus and the emotion? Is this a lack of investigation or another manifestation of Englishness? <laughs> well, we've got two people here from England, so <laughs> got our choice. But there's more than one question in here, so I'll have to start all over again. There's a whole bunch of questions. Um, Emotion is sensation in the body caused by mental formation. Well, that's not exactly the way to say that. Um, emotion is very often associated with an awareness of physical sensation, but it doesn't have to be because the emotion is so overriding that one doesn't realize the physical sensation. Now, if one gets angry, one might get red in the face, and a lot of people do. It's very nice to see that because immediately you know that person is angry. It doesn't matter what they're saying. They get all red in the face. Um, then other people, they get afraid and they feel a very uh, distinct sensation in the pit of their tummy. Uh, but other people are very much afraid and don't become aware of those sensations. The emotion is the generator of the sensation because this, the emotion is the mental formation and that generates the sensation. So you can, of course, have a very unpleasant sensation. You hit your toe against the stone and that is your sensation first and then you get your anger about it or you're upset or whatever it is. But the generator of the sensation is the emotion. So the emotion is there and then you can be aware of it or you might not. Now, fear, for instance, can paralyze one. But first there's fear and then you get paralyzed. I mean, it's possible that you can't move yeah? because you're so afraid. Okay, so that's, that's that. And it is a mental formation, the emotion, because the mental, well, you can't really say that. It's shitta, it's mind. You see, mind consists of the sense consciousness, the feeling, the perception, and the mental formation. So we have that within mind. So first you have the emotion, which is that what happens in the mind, rather not call it mental formation, call it that what's in the mind, and then you can have that uh, sensation with it. So that's one thing, a reaction to previous sensations, mental formations. You mean because it's old embedded stuff in there, and then you get another uh, sensation? Is that just what you mean by that? Because you've got stuff embedded. Is that what you mean? Or, or just the cycle from day to day. Habit. 
Well, it does. The reaction becomes a new coma formation, and that, that is true, but a reaction to previous sensation. Old stuff? That's right, that's true. It's a constant round. That's quite true. Uh, we can say that quite clearly. That's quite true. Um, we can see this quite easily. Um, let's say we, we hear something and we don't like it, right? It gives an unpleasant feeling because it doesn't have any uh, relationship to what we really want to hear. So we get an unpleasant feeling. And then from that unpleasant feeling, the mind gives them a label and says nonsense or just a view, not true. And then the mental formation reacts to that and says, I don't like that person. So that mental formation of I don't like that person is the new sense consciousness. And that, again, creates an unpleasant feeling. And from that unpleasant feeling, because I don't like, always creates unpleasant feeling. And from that I don't like and the unpleasant feeling comes again the perception of, well, maybe um, terrible. And then comes a new mental formation which says, uh, I, ca I can't stand this. And then again, and again, and again, one round after another, and no way out. So that's quite true. Um, so while one has had a sense contact as the first trigger, the next trigger is then the mental reaction. And it becomes habitual. And that's why we have to watch so carefully for um, our negative reactions, because they're so habitual and we believe them. And that belief system is the most insidious and most damaging thing that we can have because then we run from one negativity to the next. And then, of course, we don't only hurt ourselves, we can easily hurt others with it, and usually do. So that's the first part of this. Now comes the second part. <laughs> is it necessary to know what the unwholesome emotion is about in order to let go of it? Not necessarily. If you know that anger, dislike, rejection, resistance is there, you don't have to necessarily know what you're angry about rejecting or resisting in order to let go, but usually you do know. Or at least you're thinking. One thinks one knows because one's heard something that one doesn't like. It doesn't agree with what one is already has as a fixed view, and it doesn't agree with that. And as it doesn't agree with one's fixed view, of course, one doesn't like it. Um, actually, it's easier to let go if one doesn't have a focus of it. Because if one has a fixed view, and everybody does who is not Arahant fully enlightened, if one has fixed views, and some people have terribly fixed views. I mean, they're really fixed. They're clinging to them because they give them their identification system. Uh, if one has that already, and then knows that one is angry because somebody doesn't agree with them, it'd be much harder to let go as if one just realizes there is anger. Anger is not wholesome karma or dislike or resistance. It's uh, unwholesome karma, and I'm only hurting myself, and doesn't even go to that what has aroused it, and then let's go. Um, the letting go is the hard part one should try to substitute first you know, with some acceptance, with some... One of the things that one can do in those cases is 
doubt one's own reaction. That's always a very good start, to doubt it, whether it's really so. And then one can, you know, letting go is a hard one. And it is easier to let go if one doesn't know, but usually one does. My experience is that emotion is always, isn't, sorry, always clearly linked to anything. Or there's a gap, sometimes days, oh, between the stimulus and the emotion. Hmm. And then you can still find the stimulus after days of it. I don't have that personal experience. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I have to admit that personal experience is lacking in my makeup. <laughs> if there's a stimulus, I know all about it. <laughs> um, days. And you still remember the stimulus then, days later. Right. And, and then you can get to the emotion. Yeah. And then you realize that the stimulus is long ago, like a day earlier. And we are talking about unpleasant emotion, I dare say, is it? Uh -huh. that there is an emotion. But then you get an, uh, become aware of the emotion, and then you also become aware of the fact that the stimulus may be two days before. Hmm. I was going to say that's very unusual. <laughs> that uh, one would say that is a slow reaction, is it? <laughs> um, the sensation, the sensation, of course, the physical sensation first. Yes, that is quite possible. That is quite possible. It may be stronger. The emotion may be uh, a little hidden. And so the physical is stronger. That's quite possible. The emotion is a generator. There's no way out of that one because mind is a generator for the body. Right? It's always. But still the body thing may be stronger, the body sensation, so that that comes first and then uh, with investigation the mind realizes, aha, I'm angry, and that's why my tummy is churning. Okay, and the reason I am angry is because three days ago somebody said something nasty about me. Well, <laughs> that's very slow, isn't it? What happened at the time when somebody did say something nasty? Nothing? Yeah, I see. Uh-huh, right, okay. Taking it and digesting it and then seeing that now I need to get angry. But, um... <laughs> no, no, you don't do it body first, but you are aware body first. That's quite all right. There is no harm in that at all, uh, becoming body aware first. But you need to know that it is the emotion that is creating the body sensation. The body just can't do that sort of thing. It doesn't have the wherewithal. Right? It reacts to the mind, and it does that constantly. So that's okay that way. Um, digesting it and then getting aware of it, coming aware of it. I dare say that more 
meditation and maybe a little more of the sweeping will bring the two together, the stimulus and the reaction, <laughs> so that one becomes aware of one's habitual reactions because we do react to the same stimulus in an habitual way. And as we can see that, we can let go easier. Uh, sometimes if you do look for the uh, cause for it, and if it's, you know, even if it's past, it's not so easy to let go. And so I think the two will come together more. Okay? Yeah, well, I, I don't know about this Englishness. I mean, I did say that with tongue and cheek. Huh? <laughs> I wasn't all that serious about that. Okay, we've done this one, right? Okay. Aya, would you tell us some of your background on this path, your teachers, have you, how you came to practice jhanas? Oh, yes, all right. Some of your background on this path. Well, I traveled through India in the 60s, and in those days, the backpackers were very rare. <laughs> were not so many in the early 60s. And when I was in India, we went to... Uh, Sri Aurobindo Ashram in Pondicherry and the mother was alive in those days Sri Aurobindo himself was dead and uh, the mother taught meditation and uh, so I went and learned it from her she was quite an old lady already she was maybe 80 at the time but uh, very energetic and uh, there were many uh, westerners in that ashram like 1500, I'm not sure, but something like that. Very interesting place in those days. Um, so then, uh, but that was, of course, I learned about Hinduism then. Uh, and uh, also went to uh, Ramana Maharshi Ashram. But he was dead too, but uh, his disciples were there and explained what he had been teaching. Uh, his path was uh, Advaita Vedanta, which is non-duality, but very much based on bhakti, which is devotion. And uh, so that was uh, in the early 60s, in 1963. And only in 73 did I first uh, hear about uh, Theravadan Buddhism, and it uh, was much easier to understand than the uh, Hindu path. I found it very difficult to understand. In fact, I didn't understand a thing, to be, to be quite honest. And uh, I didn't have any, um, uh, any hope of understanding it. It just seemed too complicated. And um, so the uh, Buddhist path seemed, in this tradition, very straightforward, and I could understand it. And um, so what else? my teachers. My first teacher was Prakantipalo. He was an English monk, very English. <laughs> <laughs> and he has now, after 30 years of being a monk, disrobed. <laughs> and those of you who were with me last year at the Holy Redeemer have met him, the very thin, tall monk who was there and came to visit me. I am sure you remember him with those of you who were there last year. And then he disrobed after that and uh, has taken on now uh, a Tibetan Lama who is a lay person as his teacher. 
the name of that Lama is Nongkai Nobu, and he lives in Italy, and uh, he has taken him as his teacher. And apparently, I don't know, I've never met this man, uh, he does not, um, well, he does not approve or appreciate or foster the monastic uh, environment at all, and so he has disrobed and taken, gone away from the Theravan tradition. Uh, however, in 1973, when I heard him for the first time, he made a lot of sense. I thought it was very straightforward and very good teaching, and I got interested in that. And uh, he came to stay with us also. I was living in Australia at the time, and he lived with us in Australia. We built him a kuti on our farm. We had a 200-acre farm. And then, after that, I learned the uh, method of sweeping, which I've taught you in Burma. And also, I was also with one of the teachers here in America, Hava, who also was teaching that. But I also went to Burma to the Uberkin Center and learned it there. And then other teachers. I went to Thailand, and I stayed in a forest monastery in Thailand. And uh, the teacher there um, was the main disciple of Tanachan Mahaboa, who is considered to be Arahant. He's still alive and quite old now. I think he must be, I don't know, 85 maybe. I'm not sure, but he's quite old. And uh, his name is Tanachan Mahaboa. Tan means venerable. Achan means teacher, and Mahaboa is uh, his monk name. And uh, I stayed in this forest monastery on two of them. The uh, actual one where I went first was a very interesting thing that happened. The, um, I was there for several months, and then after that, I went to the forest monastery of Tanja Mahaboa. And then the king of Thailand invited the monks of that area for his 60th birthday party. And Tanachamaboa said, if the king wants to see me, he'll have to come here. So he didn't go. But 10 of the other monks, and amongst them his main disciple, took a plane to go to that birthday party, and they all died. The plane crashed. And these were ten, well, at least four of them were known to me to be very great teachers. So it was a, really a disaster. And uh, the other six, I don't know who they were, but they were very well-known monks, otherwise they wouldn't have been invited by the king. So that was there. That was in Thailand. And after that, I went to Sri Lanka, and in Sri Lanka I became a nun. And uh, my preceptor was the Venerable Narada Terra, who is now dead. And he was one of the most well-known monks in Sri Lanka, uh, also spoke perfect English, which is not so common uh, amongst the monks and totally uncommon amongst the nuns in Sri Lanka. So, um, but he wasn't my teacher, he was just my preceptor. Preceptor is the one who ordains you and gives you the precepts as a nun. And I established Parapudua Nuns Island in Sri Lanka, which was an island in a lake um, 
right next to Monk's Island, which is called Polgersdor, which was established in 1911 by the German monk Nanatiloka. And when they found this so-called German nun, they thought, well, that's the thing. She can establish a nun's island. And so I had these supporters, and uh, I said, well, all right, then, if you want to establish nun's island, okay, I'm here. I'm available. And uh, we have one, two, Barbara isn't here, three girls here who have been with me on Nuns Island, uh, Twilight and Anya and Barbara, but Barbara isn't around. <laughs> so um, there we had some nuns, but most of the women who came, came for three or six months um, to practice uh, intensively. I left, oh yes, and then in Sri Lanka I found a teacher who really understood more what I was talking about. And his name is Venerable Jnana Rama. He's still alive. He's 90. Uh, he lives in a jungle monastery in Sri Lanka, 500 acres of jungle full of chattering monkeys. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, of course, also quite a lot of non-chattering monks. Mm-hmm. Um, no nuns, because in Sri Lanka one keeps monks and nuns apart. One has nunneries with abbesses and mons- monasteries with abbots. So I could not live with him, and never really, uh, there was never any question of wanting to do that, but so I visited him and um, about once a year, and then other times, maybe a little more often, to uh, discuss. Because by the time I found him, I had already done all the, the uh, preliminary steps. I'd done the jhanas, but I had never taught them. Because they are a very well-kept secret. And uh, a no-no in so many traditions. And because of that, I never opened my mouth. Funny. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and then when I met, uh, I went to see Venomanyana Rama because I'd been told about him by a Western, an, in, an English monk again. <laughs> and uh, he told me that this uh, particular monk was very um, knowledgeable and uh, could you know, be very helpful. So I went to see him and I told him about the jhanas and he confirmed them and begged me in no uncertain terms to please teach them in the West because they are a lost art. And I said, all right. At first I thought he meant teach. And I said, but I am teaching. And he said, no, no, teach the jhanas. And I said, all right. So I, that was in 1983. So I gently and slowly started to mention them. And those of you who have been with me even in 1984, I think there are some here, and 85, they know that I gently mentioned them. And as I gently mentioned them, I realized people could do them. And I thought, gee, this is great, so I will be a little less gentle. And I will mention them a little more definitely. And then I realized even more people could do them. And I thought, well, okay then. 
will do this. And so I kept going back, of course, because I was still living in Sri Lanka. I lived in Sri Lanka until 89 on Nantes Island. And I kept going back to this teacher of mine, Venomanyana Rama, and discussing with him through an interpreter. My Sinhalese is impossible, and he doesn't speak any English at all, but we could understand each other very well. We had a young monk whose English was perfect, uh, absolutely perfect and uh, young and very well established in meditation so we had no problem at all uh, talking to each other it was a little took a little longer but that didn't matter we had lots of time and uh, so i kept going back to him reporting the so-called successes with the janus and he kept encouraging and confirming and encouraging and confirming and even though <laughs> i never forget it <laughs> even though uh, at one stage, I received a four-page letter from a Western monk in Sri Lanka saying, how could you? Nobody can do the jhanas. And uh, if you teach them, that means you can do them. And uh, anyway, I read it out on Nansalant, and uh, we sort of thought about it a bit and then thought, well, I'll write to him and say, please inquire from Venerable Nyanarama. And I wrote that back and said, please inquire from Venerable Nyanarama, and that was the last I ever heard about it. And uh, because Venerable Nyanarama is very well known in Sri Lanka, it's a very small country. Everybody gets known there. It's, uh, you know, if I say I'm extremely well known in Sri Lanka, it's meaningless because it's such a small country. And uh, so, so few people, and one Western nun that teaches uh, meditation, of course, it, I'm known there. And everybody knows him. Venerable Nyanarama has been a monk for the last 60 years and uh, has taught many, many monks and lay people. So... That was the last of that. And so then still people come nowadays even, what, Janice? Who can do that? Or why should you teach that? Uh, and things like that. Anyway, it, since 1983, I gently started mentioning them and then less and less gently until I finally decided it should be in a book, and that's in the Iron Eagle. And there will be another book where they will be even maybe... Um, the insider rising from them more delineated, even more detailed. Um, I think the question was also how you came to practice jhanas. Well, that may be quite a nice story too. Um, I've been uh, reading and studying the Buddhist words for about 28 years now. But of course in the first 10 years it was sort of off and on. I think you can all identify with that, no? <laughs> okay. And after those first 10 years had gone by and uh, I decided, well, that was really something, I really started to read and study. And, of course, I was meditating. And I had by that time established a monastery in Australia with this monk, Parkantipalo. I just had to refurbish that, resurrect it, because, as I said, he has disrobed. I have now... Um, invited a German monk from Thailand, and hopefully, uh, apparently everything is going very well. Anyway, I was living there and uh, was watching my breast dutifully, as we all supposed to do, sitting there watching it and thinking and watching and thinking and watching. And uh, then one day I started reading the Visuddhimaga, The Path of Purification, and it talked about jhanas. And then I thought, well, what is, what is this? Meditative absorption is wonderful. And then I started reading the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-end things, which 
have one section. There are 150 discourses in the Middle and Things, and there's one section of 52 discourses which talk about nothing but meditation, the Buddha's instructions. There is a mistaken view afoot that there's only one sutta which gives instructions in meditation, the Satipatthana, the mindfulness meditation, the mindfulness sutta. There are hundreds of suttas giving instructions on meditation. And the middle end sayings, the Majjhima Nikaya, is the one that contains most of them. It also contains the Satipatthana, of course, M10, middle, middle end sayings number 10. It contains them also, but it doesn't contain many more. And by the way, the Satipatthana Sutta, if anybody is interested, also contains the jhanas, if anybody should ever take a good look at it. So uh, now then when I was reading all the others, I thought, well, now, wait a minute, that sounds as if that's what needs to be done. And so I decided that what needed to be done. And seeing I was a meditator and seeing I had you know, plenty of time to meditate, it uh, didn't take long to be able to get into the first jhanas, first three anyway. And then, of course, having wanting to inquire about it, there was nobody to inquire from. And then when I read about the higher jhanas, I'll never forget that. I can't even remember whether I had already done the fourth one or not. I can't remember that now. But I remember sitting in a night sitting at Wat Buddha Dhamma, which is the monastery I established in Australia. It's a forest monastery of 200 acres. It's very beautiful there, isn't it? (laughs) 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 And um, we were doing a night sit for the full moon, and it was 12 o'clock at night, and we were getting coffee at that time so we wouldn't fall asleep. And uh, I was thinking, now I've been sitting here all this night, and I've been doing all these things I've always been doing. I'm going to do something new. This is boring. And I'm going to go into the higher jhanas. And uh, I decided that was for the next step. And I knew what they were called, and I knew what was written in the Majjhima Nikaya, in the Middle and Sayings, which is very, very brief, and uh, usually one sentence. And I know what is written in the Visuddhimagga, in the Path of Purifications, which is usually more than one sentence, but it doesn't tell you a thing. And, uh, but I thought I knew it was called the infinity of space. And I thought, well, infinity of space, so what? Let's go there. And uh, I decided to sit there and do it, and not fiddle around, but do it. And I remember exactly having that determination, having that very strong will to do it and doing it. And, of course, being very pleased about it, too. And uh, then, of course, I thought, well, if you can do that, you can do the rest. And so that took a while. I can't remember now. I can only remember doing that one with strong determination. And uh, with all that, all I can say is I, of course, didn't have anybody to tell me what to do except the Buddha's words, and they should be good enough for anyone. They are straightforward, they are translated into English, they are in good language, we can all understand them, and they're right there for us to read. And as, we, as I read them, of course, they didn't make so much sense then as they make now when I've been doing this for many years, but at that time, that was my first start to go into the higher jhanas. And only later did I find out that the higher jhanas are really needed to get your past moments. So... The, um, that was the path of the jhanas. And then I had to wait till I found Venerable Nyanarama, and then I had the confirmation. And if he had not said to me, please teach that, 
I wouldn't have done it, not to this day, because I know that there are always people who are trying to make out that that is the wrong way. There's always somebody. There's never fails. They'll always find somebody. But those of you who have done them, well, nothing else to say about that. <laughs> what is there to say? So that might be a very complete, maybe not so interesting answer to this question. Huh? That tell you everything you want to know, Bob? <laughs> I know most of the handwritings. <laughs> Uh, you spoke of those who attained liberation through the wisdom inside path and those who attained it both ways through direct experience of the jhanas and the inside following. From the explanation, it seemed that liberation both ways was in some way a better thing. Surely the attainment of liberation is complete or are some arahants more liberated than others? Um, well, you, I've read you the exact words of the Buddha. I mean, there was no question about it. I didn't make it up. I read you what the Buddha said, that that is the, the more, um, more, what did he say? I can't remember the exact words now. He said it was a more wonderful way, both ways. Um, liberation in insight is always the same. But there is something attached to the liberation which appear, which comes about through both ways. And that what is attached to it is that one has certain powers which are called, which one ex thinks of as supernormal, but they're not. They're very normal for any mind that can do the jhanas. There are some powers. And the Buddha had them in an enormous way because when he spoke, people sometimes attained liberation by listening to one discourse. We've had uh, 32 by now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so the power which is in the mind of a, of a person liberated in both ways is enormous. And not only that other people can gain that uh, liberation by listening to that power, the person, him or herself, has other powers. They read the minds of other people without any difficulty, even though one might add to that it's not always so desirable. And um, the other thing they can do is they have less, less bodily difficulties. Even though even an arahant gets sick and dies, while they're still all right, their body, they can control their body better. And that, that body control is helpful to them, especially in old age. So uh, these are additional benefits which come from being liberated through calm and insight. The uh, liberation through insight only is a hope and a prayer. The, uh, in the Buddha's day, it was considered to be a, po a possibility and has been taken over in that, from that. But with, as we come away further and further from the spiritual master who has given the teaching, which is always the case, the longer one gets away from it, the more it gets watered down. What else should happen? It can't get stronger. It gets weaker and weaker. And as it gets weaker and weaker, our uh, possibilities 
for liberation by just seeing that there's nobody there and then feeling that becomes less and less of a possibility. So the, uh, the greater advantage of both ways is because in the texts, because of those things which I've already said. There are other powers attached to it, but I don't think they're worthwhile going into. All right. <laughs> That's the same thing again. <laughs> Please tell us how you came to spiritual life. When did you begin to meditate and come to the Buddha's path? Who were your teachers? I did say all that. Huh? How did you learn the jhanas? I did that. Become Buddhist nun. When did you decide to teach the jhanas around the world? I have already answered all that. Huh? Um, it would be nice to have this on a cassette tape for your students who are interested. Okay, I've, I think I've answered the whole thing. Huh? In this path of moral virtue, it seems an emphasis is placed on... Oh, yes, I have difficult handwriting. I have never seen it before. On reference for renunciation as a single person. I think it means celibacy, huh? Is that what it means? It seems to me a relative piece of cake to exist in the bliss of meditation without, 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 what? Something with the challenge of partnership. Without, I think I'm going to ask the person who wrote this to read it. I can't make it out. Who's, who's wrote that? Ooh. <laughs> it's too difficult for me to read. I can't read it. Well, come on, own up to it. Come on. <laughs> you read it out. Stay here and read it out nice and loud. In this path of moral virtue, it seems an emphasis is placed on preference for renunciation as a single person. It seems to me a relative piece of cake to exist in the bliss of meditation without dealing with the challenge of partnership, a level of intimacy that can show one just how much self-illusion is left to be threatened, challenged, mirrored, etc. Please explain why the path appears to favor the easy way. <laughs> Why the pass off? <laughs> what? Why the path of what? The, I couldn't understand the word. I don't. It seems it's sometimes more of a challenge to be, you know, in a partnership than just be alone. Right. Okay, I understand what you're saying. Okay, I'm 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 with you. Okay. It's the cave story. Sorry. The cave story. The cave. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The one with the elephant. Is it? Or what? No, going to a cave as opposed to being in the world. Oh right. Um, why the path of celibacy? Is that what you said? Is the easier one or what? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, one of the things that is very helpful is a, is a uh, fact of having had these partnerships and realizing that they don't bring a thing except problems. And then realizing why they bring the problems. They bring the problems because both people have a solid me. And so they're getting at each other. Now, obviously, there are days when they don't. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. 
ਹੋਇਆ ਨਹੀਂ ਆ ਰਿਹਾ ਬਟ ਇਟਸ ਕੈਸਟ ਟੁਮਾਰੋ ਸੋ ਇਟ ਇਸ ਆਈ ਹੈਵ ਆਲਵੇਸ ਫੈਲਟ ਐਂਡ ਥਿਸ ਇਸ ਅ ਪਰਸਨਲ ਓਪੀਨੀਅਨ ਥੈਟ ਇਟ ਇਸ ਫੂਲਿਸ਼ਨੈਸ for the monks to become monks before they ever even had any um, experience of the worldly life which is a very common uh, thing to happen in all theravadan countries particularly the ones i know namely thailand and sri lanka and i think it's the same in burma and i don't know burma that well i was only there very short time and i said the whole time in a meditation cell um so i don't know anything about burma but i know you know i've spent 10 years in sri lanka and i know a number of monks and i've always felt that it was foolish to become a monk and not having experienced the worldly life because it um that challenge hasn't been there i know i was told a story once and i beg you to consider that it may not be a true story but i was told this story and i think it's such a wonderful story that i would like to repeat it mahasi sayadaw was the greatest of the burmese monks he was sort of like in charge of the whole sangha in burma he's dead now and he came only once to the west to teach and he came to switzerland and he gave a meditation course a 10 day what's usually called vipassana course and you know all about it what i think of that word so when he was giving this course he was also giving interviews and he had a translator because his english wasn't that good he did speak it but he and, and he always always understood it but it wasn't all that good so he had a translator and then when the interviews were over one day he turned to his translator and he said to him tell me young man what's an emotional problem <laughs> <laughs> so by that time he had been a monk for 60 years he was 75 at the time <laughs> so <laughs> Now whether this story is true or not I leave that open I don't know I wasn't present I was told the story uh, it may be true even if it isn't true I think it's a very good story so um <laughs> <laughs> So I I I I think this answers your question very well I mean one emotional problem after another in a relationship and then you change the relationship and then you start all over again uh, naturally but one of one day having practiced enough and practiced means meditated to the point where one has seen oneself more clearly not where one has more opinions about oneself and others but where one has seen oneself quite clearly and not seeing the outside triggers but seeing oneself at that time when that has come about one then may take it seriously to become liberated and then when one takes it seriously to become liberated then one needs every bit of energy every bit of strength and every bit of will power in order to do that and one hasn't got any lev- left over to deal with the emotional challenges of a partnership one's gone through the whole thing and seen that whenever there are me's they're always going to clash because the me wants to be right and those two me's are clashing and then sometimes of course as i said before uh, one of the me's gives in and says okay you can have it this time and then next time maybe the other me gives in and says all right this time you can have it but this is a constant and then one day is it seen that that is no longer the necessary pathway but as long as one has that necessity to go on that pathway it's fine it's one way of doing things um celibacy is also another aspect which is a very important one 
in, and that's why um, monks and nuns in this tradition now with celibate. There are other traditions where that's not the case, but in this tradition always celibate. And that is this, that our strongest desire, and I've mentioned this before, is the sexual desire. In all the sensual desires we have, sexual is the strongest. Now, with that sexual desire comes a great deal of strength, enormous strength. And if that can be transformed and channeled, into the spiritual path. The strength on that spiritual path becomes not only doubled, it becomes magnified. So that sexual energy to direct that into spirituality can bring about a great deal of opening. So that's the reason for celibacy. Um, I would hesitate to say that it should be renunciation because if it is renunciation, which means superimposed upon one and saying, well, you've got to renounce in order to become enlightened, it doesn't work because it appears to be something that is put upon you from outside as a rule. It is something that one renounces oneself from within. And as one does that, one gets this enormous strength which is otherwise dissipated in the sexual energy, in the sexual um, uh, desire, and in the sexual act. And the energy is enormously dissipated in that. So does that answer the question? Somehow or other. <laughs> ah, there we are. Dear Aya, would you please tell us about your training to become a nun? <laughs> Where, when, how, and how much? <laughs> Love, Susan. Well, I did that already, didn't I? Yes. It's uh, actually, one doesn't have to have training. I've had oodles of it, but one doesn't have to have it. I had uh, a lot of training in the Vinaya, which is the, the rules of the order, from this Prakantipalo, who knew it backwards, still knows it backwards, and apparently has rebelled against it after 30 years of it. Um, and we did that every day on, uh, at Wat Buddha Dhamma. We studied it. That was before I was a nun. And, uh, of course, I had training in Sri Lanka and in, in, in Thailand. A Thailand before I was a nun, Sri Lanka when I became a nun. And uh, so, uh, but one doesn't have to. If one decides one wants to be a nun in one of those countries, like Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, you can just go somewhere to a reputable um, monk and say, I want to be a nun. And he'll ordain you. But, you know, it would be foolish to do that. <laughs> is there a story of yes the um, the stepmother of the Buddha Ma Pajapati wanted to become a nun uh, his own mother had died seven days after he was born and sometimes in one of these stories it's told that always happens when there's an, a Buddha born, that the mother dies. Anyway, Ma Pachapati was his mother's sister, and she was also married to the same husband, Sadodana. He was a king, but his, uh, one would say uh, in a small uh, kingdom, just a small province type of thing. And um, when the Buddha then came back, uh, from the forest enlightened uh, many of his relatives and uh, his um, the uh, like the noble uh, the higher caste people of his uh, um, 
kingdom wanted to become monks and nuns. Well, monks was no problem because uh, the Buddha himself was a monk, so he could ordain them, but there weren't any nuns. And then all some of the uh, noble ladies of the court also wanted to become nuns. And Ma Pajambati was their leader. She was his stepmother. And uh, the Buddha said, no, he didn't want to have any nuns. It wasn't... Uh, was sort of dangerous to have nuns because was, and this is often misunderstood. It's not that the nuns are dangerous. It's dangerous for the monks to have nuns. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <clears throat> I mean, anyone who's lived a, a, a worldly life knows what goes on in the world. So um, that was a sort of the denial. But the Ma Pajabati didn't want to be put off at all, and her ladies didn't either. And there was, um, the story says, there were several hundred of them. And the Buddha went to another town, so they followed him. And they went barefoot, and they let their hair stream down, which is sort of like a, a sign of um, a bereavement. When you follow a casket of a dead person, you go barefoot in India and you let your hair hang down. Usually the ladies have their hair all tied up in little buns in the back. But then you let the hair hang down. And they were wearing, um, they even put on just sort of old robes and things. And they followed the Buddha. And then they arrived there where he was. And uh, they were standing by the city gate, the story says. And they were completely disheveled. And they were actually very rich ladies, so it was very unusual to see them in that condition, you know, barefoot and all uh, dust of the road on their feet and legs and the hair all in a mess and the, the old uh, robes they had put on. And uh, Ma Pajabati and uh, some of the ladies were crying and Ananda came by, and um, who was the Buddha's cousin and his attendant, and asked them why they were in this condition and why they looked so terrible and uh, were crying. And they said, well, they wanted to be nuns, but the Buddha didn't want them to become nuns. So then Ananda went to the Buddha and said, um, now, sir, couldn't you have these ladies as nuns in your dispensation? And the Buddha said, no, no, I can't do that. And you mustn't forget also that in India in those days and today also to some extent, uh, women were, the, um, were owned by their husbands. So all these ladies, of course, were married ladies. And uh, if they weren't, they were owned by their fathers. So it was a totally... Um, totally male society. And uh, Ananda said, yes, but um, then he thought, well, you know, the Buddha doesn't like these ladies to become nuns, but they're all crying and looking so uh, uh, terrible. I think I should do something for them. And he was, you know, very, very kind-hearted. Ananda is the most appealing figure in the whole of the Pali canon because uh, he uh, seemed to have, well, he's very prominent in it, or he's very kind-hearted. And so he said, well, uh, sir, can women become enlightened just like men? And the Buddha said, yes, they can. And then Ananda said, well, if that's the case, uh, couldn't you oblige Ma Pajapati, who raised you as a baby, and uh, gave you mother's milk when your own mother died and looked after you until you were a grown um, man? And uh, then the Buddha said, yes, uh, well seeing that they can become enlightened and you're putting it that way with Ma Pajapati having been my stepmother. Okay, I'll let them become nuns. And then he gave, supposedly, he made eight 
what are called the eight guru dhammas, the heavy rules. And uh, there is a great question in scholarly circles whether these rules are really the way he made them because they don't sound quite uh, common sense rules. So um, at that time, Ma Pajapati then uh, was told by Ananda she can become a nun, and so she went to the Buddha, and um, uh, the Buddha said, Ehi bikuni, which means, come, nun. And that was the whole of the ordination ceremony. <laughs> and uh, then he said uh, that uh, she could ordain the other nuns, and uh, then later on, uh, it wasn't possible for him anymore to ordain everybody personally, so then he made rules about how the ordination should take place so that other monks could take his place. But the first way was Ehi Biko or Ehi Bikuni. And uh, so then in that day, that's how the Nan Sangha started. That's what the question was, not it? Yes. And then, of course, this uh, uh, Sangha of Bikunis which means nuns, bhikkhunis, like bhikkhu means monk and bhikkhuni means nun, uh, became uh, uh, very prominent. And uh, many of the uh, like ministers and uh, uh, wives and so forth became nuns. And then there was a very famous king in India, King Asoka, very famous. And he was a very warrior-like king and very successful. He was able to unite India for the first time uh, because he won his wars. They, India in those days, this is about 250 BC, in those days was all little, little kingdoms of all kings looking after their little kingdom, just like the Buddha's father, King Sododana, had a little kingdom, Magadha. And uh, so then Asoka was able to unite India. And then, had he, having done that, he realized he had done a lot of bloodshed and became aware of the Buddha's teaching, which was 250 years after the Buddha's death, and uh, changed himself completely. He uh, established uh, the first maternity hospitals. He established the first uh, travelers' rest houses. Um, he made... Um, um, milestones, mileage stones on the road so travelers could find where they were. He put water urns outside uh, for travelers to have water. He made an animal hospital and he became a devoted follower of the Buddha's teaching and he uh, erected um, what are called Asoka's pillars in India which can be seen to this day. One is at Lumbini at the Buddha's birthplace at the exact spot where the Buddha is supposed to have been born. And he had two children, uh, son and daughter, and they became monk and nun. And the uh, son was called Mahinda and the daughter was called Sangamita. And Mahinda uh, became enlightened and so did Sangamita. And Mahinda then decided to go to what was then Ceylon and uh, take the Buddhist teaching to Ceylon. And he was very well received there, although they were sort of very primitive even in those days still, but he was very well received. And uh, again, many people wanted to be monks, and many of the higher caste ladies wanted to be nuns. But Mahinda said, no, no, you can't do that. I have to get my sister over here. So Sang, she, he uh, sent a messenger to his father and requested that Sangamita come and bring with her a branch 
of the original Bodhi tree under which the Buddha became enlightened in what is now Bodh Gaya, uh, a sapling more likely. Uh, I don't think what the branch was a sapling. And so King Asoka quite uh, somewhat reluctantly but uh, still gave the permission for Sangamita to also go to Ceylon because he was sure he was never going to see his children again, which also was true. And she brought a sapling of the Bodhi tree in a golden bowl and uh, there are many, many frescoes in the temples of that time when she came. And uh, she established the Bhikkhuni Sangha in Ceylon. And the sapling of the Bodhi tree was planted in the capital, which was then Anuradhapura. And this sapling of the Bodhi tree is still alive today. It is a very, of course, an extremely old tree. It's the oldest recorded tree on this planet. It may not be the oldest, but it's the oldest recorded tree because one was exactly when it was planted. And, uh, of course, it's being watched over and uh, it's being nourished and uh, uh, looked after as if it was uh, one of the most precious babies in the world. It is the personal connection of the Buddhist world to the life of the Buddha because it's a live tree. And uh, maybe I can say that I... Uh, we were given a sapling of that tree to plant on Parapaduanan's island. The uh, tree, the original tree in Bodhgaya, is again a sapling of the tree at Anuradhapura because the original tree was cut down in the Muslim invasion, invasion which was uh, in about seven, 800 of our time, and the tree was no more. So then the Buddhists in India requested to have a sapling of this Anuradhapura tree brought to India, so that's flourishing there now. So it's a great-grandson or something of the original tree. But, um, or grandson, one should say, not great-grandson, grandson. So Sangamita brought the tree, and she also established the Bhikkhuni Sangha, which flourished greatly until the year 1000. And at that time, the nuns vanished from the face of the earth in Sri Lanka. And one of what is now Sri Lanka, it was then Ceylon. And one has, can only surmise what happened. There was a great Tamil uh, Singhalese war going on, which has been going on for 1,000 years, with a few years in between when they don't shoot each other. But most of the time, there's war. And uh, at that time, there was a great war between Tamil and Singhalese, and uh, the nuns being the most vulnerable part of the population were uh, all killed. This is a surmise. This is not fact, what I'm saying. We don't know. One day they were there in the chronicles. We have the big chronicle, the um, Mahavastu, and then uh, they are to be found there, but after the year 1000, nothing. So then it was slowly re-established in uh, the beginning of this century, or the end of last century. Nuns. <laughs> and if you have the time, perhaps you'd tell us about relationships, proper behavior between male and female friends. We touched upon this once, but never returned to it. Love, Suzanne. Well, what did I say when I touched upon it? Just that uh, there was, I'm talking especially in terms of behavior. You used the word behavior, I remember that very clearly. And you said, I'll return to that. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> 
can't remember a thing about it now. Um, in what in what uh, respect was it? Do you remember? Well, actually, I believe it was a, a bit of a tributary to Sue's the celibacy, but of course, uh, in friendship, the problem is yet again, as you were saying, the heart to heart, mm. and the, the difficulty of remaining. Yes. Okay. I I, I think I'm with you. <laughs> okay. Um, as long as there's sexual desire in oneself, that comes out. And that touches a chord in the other person who also has sexual desire. And then that's what you get. You either get sexual harmony or sexual disharmony. And uh, mostly, of course, the latter. And uh, so uh, when that sexual desire is gone within you, it makes no difference anymore whether you're talking to male or female. They're all, they can all be noble friends, each one of them. So that sexual desire only goes for the non-returner, three past moments. And that's a long way along the line. That's one step before being fully enlightened. So sexual desire being our strongest desire is um, very much apparent in our relationships to others. Because when it comes out as one, as part of oneself, in one's, um, one doesn't need to say anything. One usually doesn't, right? <laughs> but it's the way one acts and the way one appears um, that then, of course, there's a sort of um, resonance with that. And then the whole business of loving kindness falls apart. And it all becomes, you know, again, a mutual attachment. And with that, it's um, the proper behavior. Well, what's proper for whom, you know? What's proper for monks and nuns is a totally different story with what's proper between husband and wife or what's proper between friends and what's proper between parents and children and what's proper between... Uh, and noble friends that meditate together. All these are different aspects of one's behavior. The only thing that I could say with any kind of conviction and genera general statement is the less we have the me, the easier our relationships become. Because we don't have to have the um, opinions and we don't have the, the desires. Now, the opinions and the desires make everything difficult. And the more difficulties we have in our daily lives, the more we will know that we have a lot of opinions and desires. And when daily life is fairly easy, then less opinions, less desires. The, op uh, the opinions are not only, of course, about things out there. The opinions are about oneself. You know, what I am and what I want. And that always makes relationships difficult. So I don't know what else would be entailed in that question. Is there something else in that? There is just a small parenthesis I would add that in England there really is no uh, difficulty. It's not that I, you know, I don't find them perfectly lovely, the, the men there. Gosh, but... <laughs> <laughs> I conjure up the kind of um, 
I know what you mean. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that's uh, that's cultural. And it's still the same. Oh. The same desire, but even I'm though they're English. <laughs> it's cultural. You know, stiff upper lip, public school, and all the rest of it. It's just not showing, in other words. That's right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Not showing, but... Uh, and in Mexico, uh, nobody ever heard of stiff upper lip. <laughs> and <laughs> and you show, you show the whole thing, and you probably show more than what you feel. <laughs> and in England, you don't, you don't show anything, and uh, you probably feel far more than what you show. <laughs> I couldn't hear. What? Yeah. <laughs> Is that where this distance comes from, emotion to reaction? <laughs> no, it's the same thing. Human beings are the same everywhere, but we have an enormous cultural and social differences. Uh, you see now, for instance, um, in Muslim countries, to this day, it's quite all right to have up to four wives. It's perfectly okay, and um, if you can afford them. The Quran says, and mind you, I've read the Quran, it says that you must be able to treat them equally. Well, of course, what has been understood that to mean that you must give them each equal um, material goods, but you'll never treat them equally otherwise, emotionally. But this is quite all right. Now, in our society, if anybody tried to do that, they'd land up in jail. I mean, it's bigamy. You can't do that, you know. So while we all have the same difficulties and the same desires and the same uh, possibilities, it all shows in a different cultural uh, expediencies. And this is also why the Buddha said in a discourse that one should learn the Dhamma in one's mother tongue. One never is going to understand it otherwise has to be learned in one's mother tongue. And this is, of course, something that in the West has been lacking uh, for a while. Now, not so much, but for a while it's been lacking greatly. And, uh, I mean, concerning the Buddhist teaching. And also, why one shouldn't take on um, cultural and social mores and uh, cultural um, peculiarities of another country thinking and hoping that they've got something to do with the Buddha's teaching. I mean, India and Japan are totally different from America, even though they've got the same houses and, uh, you know, and uh, cars all over the place. Their, their social behavior is totally different, but totally. So we have to look at that also when we get down to brass tacks, where it comes to our desires, we're exactly on the same thing. But we've got to get first through that outer uh, veneer. And the outer veneer is that what sort of is hopefully trying to keep us a little safe from being found out too quickly. <laughs> May I just ask then, you replace that? each time you find it coming up? Sorry, I, no, I'm not latching on. I'm being too oblique. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I replace what? <laughs> In other words, uh, 
Or that lovely story about the monk who just sold teeth walking by. Right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's essentially what one gets to in order not to, uh, as you say, have the... Right. Uh, yeah, not necessarily just teeth. Sometimes it's skeletons. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it's dependent arising. That's a very good one. If you can remember dependent arising, just its main features, the main steps, right? And you realize that each person that walks by is nothing but depend arising. It's all okay. And even if they get very unpleasant, it's still okay. Because they've had depend arising. They've had feeling, and from that came craving. That craving is, of course, also unpleasantness. And sometimes people don't know how unpleasant they are. That's okay, too. So that is, might be easier than the teeth, the depend arising. <laughs> It's very helpful. Just seeing depend arising. Everybody's got it. Everybody is nothing but that. Constant round. Over and over. And then you see when, when, when somebody doesn't see that at all, can't see that at all, right? Then the difficulties start. That's when the difficulty. Of course, we all forget to see it, but you can always get back to it especially after having sat here for three weeks and hear, hearing about it, right? So, but when one can't see it at all, that's when the difficulties come. Okay, anybody else have any question that may have arisen? Meanwhile, yes? Do you think it's possible to use a marriage as a tool of liberation if both partners are committed to individual liberation? Um, I wouldn't put it that way, but I would say it differently. I would say it is quite possible to be in a marriage if both partners are committed to liberation and be on the path and be on the path solidly. But to use the marriage as a tool, which part of it? The one where you squabble or what? As reflection of separate self, as information for one's own delusion and as information for one's own delusion and anger. Hmm. Well, you don't need a marriage for that. You can get that information about your own delusion and anger without but it, too. You have one already. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure. Um, I still don't think that the marriage itself is a tool. I think it can be no obstacle. It need not. It need, doesn't have to be any obstacle. As a tool, unfortunately, there's always attachment in it. And so it is, uh, that is, uh, can be seen, that attachment part, and um, especially with children, the attachment part. And if you're committed to the path, yes, certainly it can be done. No doubt about it. There are many instances in the Buddha's life when uh, there were enlightened, uh, enlightenment um, uh, experiences by um, lay people, kings, queens, anything. But of course they had the Buddha. Did you, <laughs> did you know you wanted to be a nun when you were still married and, and, and with your children? Never occurred to me. That was after? Uh, didn't, didn't occur to me. I didn't, didn't think about that sort of thing. I have been blessed with not thinking too much about the future. 
I've had, I've had that. I, was, I only noticed that, of course, after I realized what a, a detriment that was to think about the future. And I've also been blessed with a lot of dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, uh, the future didn't seem so important. So no, I never thought about being a nun. But I must say, uh, even though nobody's asked me about that, that it was the best idea I ever had. <laughs> yes? When you see Buddhism growing in the West, is it growing? Is it, is it I really don't know. There are conflicting opinions about it. Sometimes I think, yes, it's wonderful. Look at all these people. They're all wanting to practice and they're all getting somewhere. And other times I think, my God, they don't know a word about it. What's going on? Um, I really don't know. Uh, I think that it is probably here to stay in the West. And uh, that's my personal opinion. It's here to stay. I don't know whether it's really growing. I can't say. I mean... Yes, maybe, but there are so few people anyway that that bit of growth, it doesn't make a real impact. I mean, it's such a minority in the, in the whole population of this planet that are practicing. Even though there are 500 million Buddhists, they're not practicing. They're just Buddhists because they got born as Buddhists, just like Christians. Some might be practicing, but... Most of them were born as Christians, and so they're Christians. When there's a, uh, you know, a population, uh, uh, you have to fill out your affiliation, you write what you were born as. So I don't think that in this technological age that we're living in, that the spiritual path is of um, a really great impact as far as numbers are concerned. But, on the other hand, I would say that that doesn't matter because one enlightened being makes all the difference. The Buddha made all the difference. Jesus made a lot of difference. So one enlightened being makes all the difference. The rest of them, whatever. I don't know if it's growing. I can't say. But I think it's here to stay. Yes. My personal opinion, yes, of course, I, I quite, I quite uh, believe it will happen. Well, um, first of all, it says so <laughs> in the Pali Canon, and you know, if I don't believe what's in the Pali Canon, what am I going to teach you? <laughs> sure, I believe it. Because uh, morality is declining more and more. And morality is a foundation for concentration, and concentration is a foundation for wisdom. And morality is declining daily, constantly. The, uh, when I went to Australia, it was in 1964. There had never been anyone murdered who was hitchhiking. And in 1969 or 70, 
two girls were murdered in Australia who had been hitchhiking. The whole country was up in arms. It was terrible. Now it's on the back page of the newspaper in 91 or 92. So that would be one criteria I can use because I've seen it myself. Other things here in America, I think you can figure that one out yourself. You know America better than I do. You know, I don't stay here so long. So morality is declining. And it's up to each person, particularly us who are meditators, to keep the morality intact by purifying thought, speech, and action and not allowing that to become in any way on a negative level. When we allow that to happen, we are uh, supporting the decline of morality. But we can do the opposite. We can also support to keep it on an even keel. I don't know whether we can have enough influence to bring it up. I don't know. <laughs> I can't say. So morality is the first stage, and that's what the Buddha said. That's not a personal opinion. That's what the Buddha said. Morality will decline. And it will decline to the point, he gave, made a prophecy himself, where people will live 10 years and that's all. Yeah, but you see, in 10 years' time, it's very difficult to become enlightened. So it will be more and more the low class of, of mind. These are the future possibilities. I think at this point in time, we all have that potential of um, becoming enlightened here and now. But we've got to watch very much. It's a very um, balancing act. It's like walking on a tightrope. And once we lose our footing, wow. And the higher we've gone, the more it hurts. See, if you climb up a ladder and you're on the first rung and fall down, nothing at all happens. But if you've gone up eight, ladder, eight rungs or nine or ten and then you fall down, you probably break your leg. So the more one has practiced, the more one needs to be careful very careful with one's mind. But we do have that opportunity to get out of Dukkha and that we should can take. Anything else? Yes. I'm very aware that the, um, the month is nearly over and that in a few days' time I'll be back in the marketplace and I live by making things and selling them so it's literally in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I guess I'm asking for guidelines for practice. I mean, you've been giving us them constantly yeah. all month, but... Yeah, I've been trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I will talk about that on Sunday, um, okay? Yeah. Hmm? <laughs> that's... that's uh, the... Uh, <laughs> the tape is called Where Do We Go From Here? And so I will do that on Sunday. Okay? I have to have something left over to say on Sunday. What time are you doing? Uh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I have to think.
Um, we start. Uh, we have to finish at 11:30, so I have to. It uh, have to be 11. I have to start about 9:30 or so in the morning. <laughs> yes. Ah. Yes, about 9.30 in the morning. Anything else? And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your own heart and see whether you find anything that is bothersome. Dislike, anger, worry, fear, rejection, resistance, pride. And realize you're only hurting yourself. Let it float away, whatever it may be, so that the heart becomes open, spacious, ready to take in love and compassion, which are its natural ingredients. Everything else is superimposed through wrong thinking. See the spaciousness of the heart the openness, the freedom of it, and fill it with the warmth of love, the care and forgiveness of compassion. And then fill yourself from head to toe with forgiveness and surround yourself with love.
extend your forgiveness to anyone in this room, filling him or her with this soft and warm feeling of forgiveness, embracing him or her with love. Think of your parents and forgive them for anything that you think they have done wrong. Let heart and mind be soft and yielding so that forgiveness can reach out and embrace them with love. Think of those people who are close to you, those that you might live with, those that you might see soon again. Forgive them for anything that you think they've done wrong. With a soft and yielding heart, forgiveness can enter into them and love can embrace them. Think of all your friends, fill them with forgiveness and compassion. 
surround them with your love, reaffirming your friendship. Think of people you know, neighbors at home, people at work, acquaintances, relations, people you meet in offices, wherever you can think of people. Forgive them for whatever <coughs> you may have thought about them that was wrong. Let this soft and yielding heart Be generous, be giving, embrace them with your love. Think of anyone with whom you might have difficulties and let the heart be generous and giving, forgiving, filling that person with your forgiveness from head to toe and embracing that person with your love. Now fill yourself with forgiveness and love and let it flow out of you as a stream of goodness, as a stream of generosity, touching people's hearts near and far.
Let it go into people's houses, going into their hearts, making them feel wanted and accepted, appreciated and loved. Go to people around here in this area and then further and further afield through the cities, states and the country all over this planet. See yourself as one who can give this lovely gift of warm appreciation, forgiveness and care to as many people as possible.